0: thing you need to fight the trump administration this is the bill press show live at youtube.com slash the bill press show
1: was donald trump actually or is he a russian spy is he on putin's payroll that's what the fbi wanted to know and still wants to know hey hello everybody what do you say it is a Monday. January 14, here we are, snowstorm or not, we're on the job here at the Bill Press Show with all of you, live from a snow-covered nation's capital here. Uh, I think most of the government offices are shut down today, aren't they, Peter, federal uh,
2: government? I, I would guess so. I can't yeah, believe they're I, not. I would guess
1: so. First, first, first of all, the government is shut down still. There's also that, yes. Yes. But those that are not shut down or maybe shut down for a different reason, I don't know. At any rate, we had our first big snowstorm of the year and first big snowstorm of two years, actually, here in Washington, D.C. But we're on the job and so good, glad to see you today with all the news of the day. Lots going on, particularly on the Russian front. Uh, yeah, this is something Donald Trump has not wanted to talk about. One of the reasons uh, he continues the shutdown is because he's hope he's hope we talk about the shutdown or the border and not Russia. But boy, two bombshell stories about Russia over the weekend. Uh, one, yes, indeed, that the FBI suspected Donald Trump of spying for, working for the Russian government on their payroll. That's why they launched their own investigation long before Robert Mueller. And two that uh, Trump has such a cozy, chummy relationship with Vladimir Putin that he won't keep any notes and won't let anybody else keep any notes of any of their conversations. It's all a big secret between Vlad and Donnie. Oh, man, what are they talking about? Lots, Lots to get into, lots you want to talk about, so get ready to send us your comments on all of the above on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show, and we jump right in first. This is the Full Court
2: Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. When you go to the beer aisle, things are about to look a lot different, specifically with Bud Light. Bud Light is changing the design of their boxes, their cases that they carry their beer in, and also the beer cans themselves. They are going to have very prominent labels on the cans and on the boxes to show the beer's calories and ingredients along with the amount of fat, carbohydrates carbohydrates, and protein in a serving. They are putting nutritional labels on their beer. Now, this is not legally required, hmm. but beer makers agreed a couple of years ago to voluntarily disclose nutritional facts on their products by the year 2020. So Bud Light is just getting out of yeah. ahead of the, the, the game a little bit. And again, this isn't like a mandatory thing, uh, but, but Bud Light feels like it's It's time for them to go ahead and get ahead of the curve, put it out there, and sort of lead the way. I'm sort of of a mind that you know exactly what you're getting when you drink a beer. (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I don't know it's going to—I think it's good for them to do that. I don't think it's going to make any difference in sales or choice of brand, but who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah, like I said— They get some props for doing a good thing. Sure,
2: exactly. I know what I'm getting when I'm drinking a beer. I know I'm not drinking health food, uh, so it's Okay. Uh, You know, there's this whole thing... not like
1: having a glass of V8 juice.
2: No. No, absolutely (laughs) not. There's been this thing brewing for many, many years now about Alex Jones talking about how Sandy Hook was... A hoax. Right. uh, not real. The families of Sandy Hook have been filing lawsuits against against him for quite some time. Well, over the weekend, very big bit of news. A judge that has been overseeing this case has ordered Alex Jones to turn over InfoWars' marketing and financial documents as part of the case. Now, that's that's significant for a lot of different reasons. One of them is that we now know who is going to be backing InfoWars and Alex Jones. It'll be very interesting. To see if there are some familiar faces on that
1: list. Uh, we can also know how much money they might be able to get out of him.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that—that's that, why the judge opened this yeah. up. But like, yeah. we'll find out all kinds of interesting stuff.
1: Good, serves him right. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I hope they just crush him, take every penny he's got. This is The Bill Press Show. Uh, Yes, indeed. Here we go. Day 24 of the Trump shutdown, everybody. And no end in sight. What do you say on this Monday, January 14? Hello, hello. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us and being part of the program, The Bill Press Show. That's me, and you are very much part of the program as we join you all the way across this great land of ours, coast to coast on the radio, online, and on television, on television, on free speech TV, of course, online, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Check out our podcast. Sign up for our podcast at billpressshow.com or wherever you go for your podcasts Uh, and all the special stuff that we put up, uh, not only... Every day, but on the weekends as well. And on the radio, we join you statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and on the great progressive voice of Chicago and the greater Chicago area, WCPT. Yes, indeed, we are uh, digging our way out still from the first big snowstorm of 2019. In fact, we didn't have a big snowstorm at all last year. The first one in two years here in Washington, D.C. I don't know, about five or six inches here wasn't a massive blizzard. Uh, in Washington, uh, but enough to uh, cover everything and stay on the ground and looks beautiful. Uh, City did a great job of of getting the streets cleared, so uh, no problems there. Out in the suburbs, like where uh, Peter lives, um, a lot more snow. Uh, yeah, we got yeah.
2: significantly more snow. Uh, but again, I love when we have these big snowstorms. I do, too. When they happen, I... especially when they happen on the weekends. Yeah. When they right. happen on the weekends, it's great because, you know, I... Only left the house to go play in the snow yesterday, right? Like you just hang around, you did a lot of cooking, we binge a lot of TV. A great. lot,
1: yeah. A great uh scene uh, here on the hill is um, is this Capitol Hill? There's only one hill, <laughs> and it's Capitol Hill right. in Washington. And the sledding in front of the U.S. Capitol building is uh, a great sport and great fun. Uh, and pe- families come from all over, particularly from the hill and all over. Did you oh, go
2: the, did you go sled down the hill
1: yesterday? Uh, no I didn't but uh, <laughs> I did I see I saw again and it's just fun all the kids out there with their sleds. sled some of them for the very first time right yeah. yeah yeah
2: sledding is the best. it's so much fun
1: uh, so that's uh, and, and that's all up and down the East Coast uh, and uh, it was um, started Saturday and and snowed almost all day uh, a Sunday and in the meanwhile yes indeed we are now in the longest government shutdown ever. Uh, It is the Trump shutdown, known as the Trump shutdown, will always be known as the Trump shutdown because uh, there is one man uh, who is responsible for the shutdown, uh, aided and abetted um, by Republicans in Congress who know that this is not good, who know the American people don't support it, uh, who would like to see it end but who do not have the guts to stand up to Donald Trump and pass a bill to reopen the government. Uh, and by the way, you know this whole thing that, well, he'll just veto it, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't, but the job of Congress is to do their job, uh, not, not to only do their job if the president says, uh, I like what you're doing. Their, their job is to do their job and represent the American people who want the shutdown to end. And if the Senate were to take up the bills passed by the House to reopen the government. Again, Donald Trump, then he'd be on the spot. He could sign it. He could veto it. There is a third option nobody's talking about. He could just ignore it and let it become law without his signature. Therefore, he, he would not have to say that he caved in and signed the legislation. Lots of ways out of this shutdown. It's just one man's ego that's in the way. Uh, and by the way, not that this means anything at all to him, or to Republicans uh, in the House and in the Senate. Uh, according to the latest a- a- ABC poll, uh, Republicans are losing the battle on the shutdown. If they think that by sticking with Donald Trump, they're going to win the hearts and minds of the American people, uh-uh, every day it's worse and worse in terms of pu- a public opinion about who's responsible for the shutdown. Latest ABC poll, 53% of Americans blame Donald Trump and congressional Republicans for the shutdown, 29% blame Democrats. So 53 to 29. That's a pretty lopsided uh, view of public opinion, wouldn't you say? Uh, in terms of the wall, uh, latest CNN poll, 56% of Americans say uh, oppose the wall, and about 65%, even more than that, say there's no crisis uh, at the border. Uh, you notice even, even Donald Trump has backed away from um, declaring a national emergency uh, to build the border wall, like what's the emergency, number one? And um, number two, a lot of people are telling him, you may not have the constitutional authority to do this, and the Supreme Court could just overrule it right away because it'll go there fast. And number two, you do this by emergency declaration, and that means that any president can declare an emergency for any little pet project of his or hers.
2: By the way, there was a, there was this great clip of Marco Rubio last week saying, hey, you know, to that point, you know, if the president declares a national emergency over the border, what's to stop President Kamala Harris from declaring a national emergency over climate change, which might actually be a national emergency. Uh, by the
1: way, I'd say a global emergency. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's bigger yeah, than just right. a national a real, emergency. A real emergency, An actual emergency, right? Yeah,
2: uh, or healthcare. <laughs> the healthcare crisis in this country is an actual national emergency, there you go. right? And if a progressive president, uh, you yeah, know, was to right. see Donald Trump, President Candidate, was to see Donald Trump declare a national emergency over literally nothing. I mean, a nothing story then what's to stop us from from uh, exactly. going even further? And exactly. you know what? Maybe they should. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they should.
1: Yeah, right, right. Um, and, and by the way, uh, and, uh, uh, as part of those polls, um, so again, 53% blame Trump and Republicans for the wall. 56% oppose the wall. Donald Trump's approval rating, 37% in the latest. Yeah. 37%. Boy, this is great. A winning strategy. Oh, yeah. And the Republicans are following him right over the cliff. They are such dumbasses, total dumbasses to do this. Uh, But there they go, 37%. Yeah, how's this working out? They lost 40 seats in the House following Donald Trump over the cliff. Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Mitch McConnell, idiots, absolute idiots. They don't have the intelligence to, to serve in the United States Congress. Um,
2: They're just lying their way through it, too. There was a clip. I didn't bother pulling it because it was such an obvious lie. But Kevin McCarthy over the weekend said, you Uh, know, even Gavin Newsom acknowledged that there's a crisis at the border and we've got to do something about building a wall in his inauguration speech, which is a flat out 100 percent lie.
1: Total lie.
2: Like not based in any reality whatsoever.
1: What Gavin Newsom said in his inauguration speech is that we're going to be the headquarters of anti-Trump policies at the border. On climate change, on healthcare across the board. Um, uh, by the way, one uh, little factor that's uh, that's uh, become more serious about the look, the shutdown is very serious. Eight hundred thousand federal employees and their families did not get a paycheck last Friday. Many of those families live from paycheck to paycheck, um, and we've seen one real one one very specific uh, impact of the shutdown is that. They've had to close a couple of terminals at the airports in Miami and Houston because so many TSA workers did not show up for work. These people are not furloughed. These are people who are so-called essential services, meaning they have to work, but they don't get paid. No, they will get paid. Congress did pass a, pass a, a bill last week that said, that those who have had to forgo a paycheck will eventually get paid. But that doesn't help them pay their bills today. That doesn't help them go to the grocery store or fill up with gas or whatever today or or pay the mortgage or pay the car payment. Uh, And you know what? I salute those TSA workers. That's a tough job. They take a lot of crap from people like me going through security. You know, nobody likes to have to take their shoes off, take this stuff out of the bag. Uh, People are so... Damn dumb. They always say, make sure there's nothing in your pockets. And, of course, some guy goes to the machine, and he's got change. in Oh, I didn't know you meant change. Or, you know, oh, I didn't know you meant my nail clipper. I mean, yeah, they do, they deal with these idiots all the time. And uh, they take all of that abuse, and they're not getting paid. Hell, I'd stay home, too. You know, in fact, I'll tell you one way to put sh- in this shutdown. And I hereby call on myself, any of you people of federal employees, that have jobs that they say are so important, you must go to work and you don't get paid, stay home. They can't force you to work. Stay home. Think about T-S-S-A. this. TSA. If the TSA people and the air traffic controllers stayed home, yeah, this shutdown will be over in a New York second. Yeah, absolutely. And think of- Secret think- service. Stay home. Why protect the guy? Stay home. <laughs> think
2: about this with this whole like essential services uh, yeah, right. thing, right? Uh we know we do these stories all the time, like how many Americans live paycheck to paycheck. It's way more than I think politicians in in Washington D.C. realize.
1: Uh, a lot of politicians. Oh yeah, in Washington, I saw family, yeah. a family lot- the other night on the news. They had like twenty one hundred dollars in the bank.
2: Yeah, right? yeah. Then and that's, that's not
1: going to carry them very
2: long. Exactly. And so if you're a TSA worker, or a Secret Service agent, or someone who, uh, you know, is considered essential services. You know, we live in a gig economy now, so you have to think about it, and you have to put, like, just an equation. I could either pick up some work, whether it's driving for Uber or whatever, whatever it is, right? Or I could go to my job where I'm not getting paid. I need money right now, or I could go do something else where I could get paid right now. It's a not—it's it's like a no-brainer, right? Like, you have yeah. to go and get the money. So, yeah, if they stayed yeah. home or took other sure. work while the shutdown's sure. going on.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That would end it. That would end it. Um, Dick Durbin yesterday, uh, appearing on uh, This Week um, uh, with um, uh, George Stephanopoulos, said, you know, look, uh, it's it's time for these Republican senators uh, to actually um, step up and and just, again, not follow Donald Trump uh, off the cliff anymore.
3: There are Senate Republicans, the centrists who were trying to find some solution, were shut down by the White House. It's time for those centrists to speak up in their own Republican Senate caucus and to tell Mitch McConnell the party's over. We want this to end. There's no excuse for the shutdown.
1: Absolutely. And as, as Dick Durbin points out, Donald Trump stabbed the Senate Republicans in the bank. In December, that last week of December, they passed a bill that the House has now passed in 2019, the democratically controlled House. But that bill started in the Senate and was passed 100 to nothing, unanimously in the Senate to reopen the government because at that time Donald Trump said he would sign it. And then he turned around and said, No, I changed my mind. And so they already went out there one time and defied, not defied Donald Trump, but they said, This is what we won. They passed a bill to reopen the government. So do it again. Do it again. You know that's what they believe. They voted 100 to nothing. Do it again," it says says Dick Durbin. Uh, Chris Murphy points out, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, that it's again not it's Mitch McConnell himself who is preventing the senators from even debating, let alone voting, to reopen the government. If Senator McConnell were to bring a funding bill before the Senate right now and every Senate Republican voted like they did back in December, we would have enough votes to reopen the government and override a presidential veto. Senator McConnell says, well, we don't want to vote on anything on anything that the president won't sign. Well, that's not how the Constitution works. Right. Not how the Constitution works. The Senate, the Congress has its job. The president has its job. The Supreme Court does its job. The Congress does not ask the president first before they act on anything, any president, doesn't matter what party. It's all summed up. uh, Chuck Schumer's been using this phrase as uh, explaining what Donald Trump, uh, what's driving Donald Trump, and Nancy Pelosi uh, picked it up yesterday. Nancy Pelosi, uh, she knows, um, she's got, I think, 12 grandchildren. She knows a a little baby throwing a you-know-what fit, when it happens. I'm
0: a mother of five, grandmother of nine. I'm a oh. temper tantrum
1: when I see one. Yeah. Uh, grandmother of nine. Temper tantrum when she sees She's one.
0: seen a few temper tantrums uh, in her yeah,
1: day. In her day. Both her kids <laughs> uh, and her grandkids. But, you know, the shutdown was eclipsed over the weekend by Russia. And two big stories about Russia. Blockbuster stories about Russia. New York Times on Saturday and the Washington Post on Sunday. Started in the New York Times. uh, In fact, it broke Friday night. I was out to dinner with some friends when suddenly the cell phones started buzzing all over the place. The New York Times reporting, which was in print on Saturday morning, um, that back when this is before Robert Mueller, back when Donald Trump fired James Comey. And this is on top of saying so many nice things about Vladimir Putin, (coughs) pardon me, that um, then Trump turns around and fires James Comey. And the FBI was so concerned about this, particularly remember one other factor, is the day after he fired Comey, Donald Trump meets in the Oval Office with Ambassador Kislyak, and um, the foreign minister of Russia, whose name escapes me at the moment, at any rate, and he tells them basically, I fired that SOB Comey yesterday. I did it because I wanted to get this Russian thing off my back. And uh, now, you know, I'm a lot better off. And then he proceeded to tell the Russians some intelligence that we had picked up from Israel, sharing top secret information with these two Russian diplomats in the Oval Office. The FBI Here's the New York Times story. The FBI was so concerned by this that they opened, again, we're talking before Robert Mueller, they opened their own investigation of Donald Trump to investigate whether or not he might actually, at the time, have been a Russian agent, that he might actually have been a Russian spy, that he might actually have been on the payroll of the Russian government. Uh, Hey, friends, this is incredible. Talk about a bombshell that the FBI suspected the president of the United States of being a Russian agent. And they opened that investigation, which was eventually taken over by Robert Mueller uh, to look into collusion between members of the Trump campaign, members of the Trump transition team, members of the Trump administration, with Russian intelligence officials. But it started with a sus- suspicion about Donald Trump himself. Now, of course, um, Donald Trump uh, goes on to, uh, uh, to talk about, uh, denies this, of course. He was on, where else would he go? Saturday night? Judge Pirro! Janine Pirro on Fox News, who asks him bluntly, no, Sir, are you ever or were you ever a Russian spy?
0: Are you now or have you ever worked God. for
1: Russia, Mr. President?
3: Okay. I
0: think it's the most insulting thing I've ever been asked. I think it's the most insulting article I've ever had written. Uh, and if you read the article, you'd see that they found absolutely nothing.
1: Uh, well, I would point out the investigation is not over yet. And actually, we have found a lot of evidence of collusion between the Trump administration. Most recently, Paul Manafort giving polling information from the campaign to a Russian intelligence officer. Right. So, By the way,
2: I, I wouldn't look too much into this. There's a he's, there's a long, 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 long answer that he gives, but in the entire yeah. answer, there's no denial. No. No. That's like rule number one for journalism. You wait until you get the denial or confirmation of the story that you're trying to tell, right? Yeah. Like you, yeah. you and he did not deny it.
1: No, no, no. Well, of course, when he's dealing with a hard hitting journalist like <laughs> That's Ginny right. Like Ginny Impero, <laughs> That's you know right. I mean, So uh but that is stunning, shocking information. Whatever they found, just the fact that the FBI was so concerned about the president, the idea, it's just unfathomable, right? You Un- would never think Think of this of any other president. I don't care who it was, right? Never suspected them of being on the payroll of the enemy of the United States. The FBI had reasonable suspicion that Donald Trump might be spying for the Russians, might be working for the Russians. That's the one big, one of the big Russian stories that broke over the weekend. And then that was followed, that was Saturday in the New York Times followed on Sunday in the Washington Post by an equally stunning article uh, that Donald Trump has had uh, five meetings with, uh, one-on-one, with Vladimir Putin so far. Uh, And in each of those meetings, he has gone out of his way to make sure there is no record at all of what they talked about. Even to the point of, and remember in Helsinki, the longest one, which was two hours, it was just Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin alone. No secretary of state, no national security advisor, no chief of staff. It was Putin's interpreter was the only one in there with the two of them. Uh, And Donald Trump has said and said at the time uh, that they just had their conversation. It was a private conversation. He wasn't going to tell anybody about it. Didn't even brief his senior staff about it. Uh, And on other occasions, he went so far as to actually – Tell his interpreter, who sat there like making notes just to be sure that you know he knew what they were talking about so he could translate. Uh, he made sure that the interpreter destroyed his notes so that those notes would not even ever be part of the public record or nobody, not even the secretary of state, could ever review them. And again, why? Why? Okay. Janine Pirro, <clears throat> great journalist that she is, she asked Donald Trump about this. Do you care if these things get out?
0: I don't care. I mean, I had a conversation like every president does. I do it with all countries. We had a great conversation.
1: Uh, well, what did they talk about? We don't know. What you know, did he th- give away? We don't know.
2: The, the one thing we know for sure about Donald Trump as president, just in terms of his presidency, is he loves to disrupt norms. He loves to break down the mm-hmm. norms, right? And th- this is something that is... Uh, a very normal thing for a president to do. You lose a lot of your independence in a way because you have people watching you all the time. You have people scrutinizing your every word.
1: And that's just how it goes. By the way, there's there's another important aspect of this is it's important for the president or a senator or whatever to have somebody sitting there so that that other person cannot make up stuff that you talked about right? Right. Or cannot misrepresent your conversation. And again, if you're talking about the president of Russia and the president of the United States, it's important that there be some record of what they
2: talked about. Even the most competent presidents that we've ever had rarely genuinely go it alone, right? They have a brain trust around them or someone who helps them. And it's very rarely that they just sort of stand out there in defiance of everybody else around them. But in this particular case, It is Donald Trump versus the world. It is nobody else.
1: No, exactly. So um, uh, then uh, uh, Ginny Pierre was asked in a typical fashion too when she asked uh, uh, President Trump about um, this article in The Washington Post, then he, of course, flips to an attack on The Washington Post Mm -hmm. and Jeff Bezos.
0: I mean, it's so ridiculous. These people make it up. Washington Post, that's basically the lobbyist for Amazon. You know, he uses that. (laughs) Bezos who has got bigger problems than anybody right now. Uh But Bezos uh uses that as his lobbyist, okay, as far as I'm concerned. And the Washington Post is almost as bad or probably as bad as the New York Times. Think of it. I have a one-on-one meeting with Putin like I do with every other leader. I have many one-on-one. Nobody ever says anything about it. But with Putin, they say, oh, what did they talk about?
1: Uh, Oh, yeah. Right. Right. uh, Right. The failing New York Times and the failing Washington Post, both of which, by the way, have record subscriptions and record number of readers uh, and online readers as well as print readers than ever before, partly because of the great reporting they are doing on the on Donald Trump and the Trump administration. Um, We'll talk more about the the uh, Russian uh, these two Russian stories with Max Bergman from the Center for American Progress uh, about a half an hour from now. Uh, but just a quick note at the uh, 2020. You know, there's so many candidates that almost every day we can tell you about a new one today. We can tell you about two new candidates jumping in. Um, one of them that I think um, is worth taking seriously. The other one, I keep scratching my head about it Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, man. I like her. She's a congressman, freshman, freshman from uh, Hawaii. No, she's, had a um, she's
2: been around for a little while. Uh, really? not, 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 than super, that? not not super long, but she's had a That's freshman. That's right. Yeah.
1: The uh, surfer, she was right? The surfer, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, she went to Syria, and met with Assad. That was kind of weird. But so she's she's a little, little you know, questionable on some things. She's but got some rate,
2: really weird stances a, on yeah,
1: things. But I kind of like her. But um, free spirit. So she's running out of the blue. She was never on anybody's list. I mean, remember I I told you I. I counted up all the possibles. It was 32 I counted last week. She was not on the list. Um, but so she said she's running uh, one that was totally unexpected. One that we didn't expect happened Saturday as planned. Julian Castro, former mayor of San Antonio, former uh, secretary of HUD, uh, HUD here, uh, making his announcement saying he is in.
3: When my grandmother got here almost 100 years ago, I'm sure that she never could have imagined that just two generations later one of her grandsons would be serving as a member of the united states congress and the other would be standing with you here today to say these words i am a candidate for president of the united states of america
1: great crowd there in san antonio in his hometown neighborhood of san antonio with his brother congressman uh, his mother and uh, his, his grandmother you know, a very attractive guy, did a good job in the Obama administration, good job as mayor of San Antonio. Uh, he will at least make an impact because he's one of the youngest candidates, and he's the only Latino candidate uh, in the race, and he's got a, he's got a good, strong message. Uh, so Tulsi Gabbard is in, Julian Castro is in, and it was announced that on February 5 in New York, aren't you excited, Oprah Winfrey is going to interview Beto O'Rourke. Oh, boy. Yes, who just, of course, had his teeth cleaned, we That's know, right. because uh, look we had to watch the whole thing on <laughs> the live great. stream. Yeah. Yes, teeth look great, right? So there it goes. Uh, well, now, America divided today. When did it all start? Can we ever get back together? Uh, Kevin Cruz and Julian Salazar have a great new book out called Fault Lines, History of the United States. They say it started in 1974, uh, this uh, divisive strike, uh, streak right down the middle of the country. We'll talk about them and uh, where we've been and where we go from here coming up next. So we'll take a quick break on the Bill Press Show. We'll be right back. Good to have you with us. Don't forget, your comments always welcome on Twitter, at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. And here we are again, uh, the Bill Press show on this Monday, January 14, coming to you live coast to coast. Uh, yes, on the radio, on television, and online. Brought to you today in part by the International Association of Iron Workers, those good men and women of the Iron Workers Union under President Eric Dean, building our communities today and ready to rebuild our infrastructure tomorrow if the Senate ever gets its stuff together or the House. <laughs> Uh, The House will. Will the Senate. That's the big question. Uh, Good to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us again, uh, taking a look at where we've been and where we're going. Um, Very important uh, for Americans to do that every once in a while. Kick back and take a look. Uh, And uh, our guests uh, for this half hour have done exactly that in a uh, great new book called Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, uh, by Kevin Cruz. Hello, Kevin. Hi. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. And Julian me. Zelizer. Julian. Nice Thank you. To see you too. Nice to be both here. from the great University of Princeton, right? That That's is right. True. Uh, and fresh from a uh, big appearance at uh, the Great Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington D.C. yesterday afternoon. Can't wait to dive in. But we've been uh, at it, stirring things up for uh, about a half an hour mm-hmm. so far. Let's go um, to Twitter. Comments Let's go to Twitter. Coming? Yes. yes,
2: indeed. We're on Twitter at BP Show. At BP Show. Lots of different comments mm-hmm. on different topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luna mm-hmm. says that maybe Trump destroyed the translator's notes after his meeting with Putin because that is exactly what Putin ordered him to do. <laughs> if possible. That's very possible. Uh, KG also, we talked about the TSA agents that are showing up and not getting paid. Uh, KG points out that even if they were getting paid, TSA agents don't make nearly enough money. Uh, Agree
1: with that. Agree with that, sure. Uh, And Phil... For all the crap... They have to take right from yeah. people like me yeah, <laughs> right. Angry. yeah. yeah. exactly i try Patient to be nice people. but you know it's a pain in the ass to have to go through that
2: yeah look and... it's a pain yeah. it's a pain uh and phil talking about the snow we got here in dc oh, points out yes. dca uh national airport right around not not far from here uh reported they got 10.2 inches over the weekend 10, 10.2 inches really over the weekend the, yeah
1: were they shipping it in yeah, <laughs> yeah. We did not have that much in the city. We here, definitely
2: but. don't have that much right here. But the, I mean, DCA is not that far from here. Yeah. Anyway, if you have a comment on any questions, snow related or not, find us on Twitter at BP Show. Yeah,
1: excuse just a little, uh, t- a little uh, tangent here. Yep. if you can, for a minute, Absolutely. yeah. Because you talk about Twitter, right? Yeah, I found it very, very interesting. You, you would too. We should also so, point out
2: Kevin is a big deal on Twitter. He's like, he's like, uh, like a super Twitter presence historian. on Twitter.
4: But, uh, but but like a big deal on Twitter feels like not a not a big deal. But 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 thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like a Z, a, a Z list celebrity.
1: Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're on this list. This is the thing. So uh, Axios put out a list over the weekend mm-hmm. of that on Twitter followers. Now this is not Twitter followers. This is total t- interactions on Twitter. Ah, uh, right. So likes, likes, retweets, retweets and yeah, everything lies. activity. Right, which is really what you want. Right. 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 So number one, of course, is Donald Trump. Sure. With 39.8 million. Okay. Who's number two?
5: Some sl- I don't know. Kim Kardashian. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, By the way. Uh, Someone, I, I like should, Someone
1: like that. It should be. but, but uh, Kanye. Celebrities are not on this list. Oh. These are political figures. Okay. Let's All be clear, <laughs> though. media. Well, or or, or media. Let's be clear.
2: Kim Kardashian is kind of a political figure That's now. That's true, too. Kanye did go. But That's I understand. I
1: understand. Corey I, like, for example, I would think Taylor Swift or... Right, yeah, right. Whatever would be on this social, but these are strictly... Speaker
5: Pelosi. Good guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, AOC. Really? Uh, of course. Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Kess, yeah. 11.8. Yeah. Uh, number four, surprise you, Kamala Harris. Number three, I'm sorry, Kamala Harris. Yep. Al. Right. She's out there. All, All right. right. Yeah. Obama, four. Yeah. Uh, CNN. CNN. 3.1 million number. Yeah, number really? All right. Five, yeah. Yeah. right. Followed by Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck Schumer surprised me because what? it's not that interesting. Yeah. Right? No. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then in terms of media, they come in. The Hill, this our local, our, yeah, yeah. our regional, yeah, yeah. or city newspaper, mm-hmm. con- congressional newspaper. Right. I write a column for The Hill. I'm sure that's why they're that high. Gotta um, be Gotta um, be absolutely. absolutely. Then ABC, New York Times, and MSNBC. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. CNN's way up there too, 3.1. But at any rate, so fault lines: history of the United States since 1974. Kevin, what's the what's the main finding?
4: The main finding. Well, the main finding is is that uh,
1: well, we have fault lines in America. Uh, yeah. Uh We've always had fault lines. But uh, since when? Why do you say seventy four?
4: Well, seventy four is is really a, this. We have to start it somewhere, first of all. Uh, and seventy four <laughs> seemed like a good place for us because, uh, first of all, this came out of a course that we designed uh, that that's, that uh-huh. was U.S. history since nineteen seventy four, and was really an effort to finally take seriously these last four decades, which are often taught, at least in universities, as kind of uh, the, the coda, the the, the postscript to the, the big U.S. history story of the 20th century. And we thought, no, they actually, they're meaty enough, they deserve attention on their own. So we started mm-hmm. it there with the resignation of, of Richard Nixon, but also there are a couple of other crisis points around 74, the oil crisis, the end of Vietnam. Uh, there's a, there's a, a lot of kind of shattering of American confidence in this period. And, and so what we talk about are the way in which the country tries to, uh reform itself in some ways and it gets reformed around these four main fault lines that we follow of politics, economics, race, gender and sexuality. Uh and what we see is that it's uh it's an incredible fracturing and it's not that the country comes back together into some new sort of common ground uh, which it had actually had to some mm-hmm. degree in the post-war period but it increasingly settles into these these lines harden, right? And there's a, actually an incentive to push the country further apart in a lot of ways. And that's what right. the books really about
1: over these you know, 40 45 years. Uh, so julian why yeah. not it seems to me that it would start in 1968. I mean, in well, 68, yeah. you've got Nixon resigning, I mean, um, uh, Johnson Johnson, Johnson mm, yeah. resigning, you've got uh, Martin Luther King assassinated, Bobby Kennedy assassinated, and, yeah.
5: you know Vietnam, I mean. Yeah, Nixon stepping down is both the end point of that period and the beginning of the new period. And so in our story, we weave in everything that had happened by the time you reach that moment, all the fallout over Vietnam, all the tension over the presidency and the distrust that was building and, and the economy starting to slow down. So, so that's all woven into the story. But it was a huge moment, uh, which in some ways now has been not normalized, but we forget the impact that had when Nixon uh, left office uh, midterm and flew away. Uh, and so that's why it, it's not as if everything happens in '74, but '74, more importantly, is a year where all this is all these tensions culminate, uh, and then we start this new period.
1: So you blame it all on Richard Nixon? No, no,
4: we don't want no, to blame no, it all. on no, Nixon. No, no.
5: Right. N- Nixon's departure it would be just, nice to. It would be, oh, nice to right. it would be nice too. It right. would be
4: nice to. But Nixon's departure is, is just is, is is kind of this fracture point that really serves as a as a kickoff, and more importantly, the response that the country has. To, to Nixon, both in terms of the congressional reforms in order to make sure something like that hopefully doesn't happen again. The changes in media, as a lot of, uh, of new reporters try to, to follow the the style of Woodward and Bernstein, that shifts that into a new direction. Uh, the things Nixon had done in the economy reverberate across the 70s as you get into stagflation. So there's there's a lot that takes off from that moment.
5: And we have a whole thing on the pardon of Nixon by President Ford, who right. follows him as a way to capture. Which was supposed to bring the country. That's exactly right. right. That was what Ford said. And, and he meant to do that in September of 74. He goes on air, pardons him for crimes he might have committed. The fallout is exactly the opposite. People are furious. They protest. They say this was a corrupt, rotten deal. Uh, accusing Ford, essentially, of having made a deal with Nixon. I'll do this if you appoint me as vice president the year before. And we. The, the fallout is as important as the resignation and capturing where the country is in the fall of 74 and the direction it's moving. There is no ability to heal the country at that point.
1: Well, so you're saying that people don't trust the government anymore from that point on? But I guess my question would be, did they ever trust it before? They had before.
4: And so if, if you look in the, in the, in the you know, is the early 60s, there's actually a a pretty strong, I can't pull the numbers off the top of my head, but there's a pretty strong majority that that trusts in in the federal government, in the abstract, Believes their congressman is truthful, uh, in particular. What? Uh, but Those were the days. Exactly, but and but it, and it really takes a nosedive first with Vietnam, the revelations of the Pentagon Papers, then with Watergate, and then with a series of scandals. So, so remember, you know, ABSCAM or Korea Gate. There are a series of congressional scandals in the late seventies that we talk about in the book.
5: Wilbur Mills.
4: Wilbur Mills, uh, which which really just you know fractures uh, the trust across the board. And so Fannie Fox. Fanny Fox, yeah. exactly. And so it's not just that <laughs> the Argentine, uh, the fire the Argentine firecracker. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Julian wrote a book on.
1: Uh, so uh, so she was only a stripper from the Silver Slipper, that but she exact. had her ways and means. Fantastic, pull. that is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing I remember about Faye right? Fox oh, and true. Wilbur Mills. Sorry, uh, anyway, Couldn't that's resist. great.
4: That's great. But 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 that's that's another example. So it's not just Nixon resigns, and so we remove. Mm-hmm. the president and all the problems go with them, right? It really, there's a wave here that starts with Watergate that really does expose a series of scandals that uh, ripples throughout the government and really does shatter uh, confidence.
1: Do you, um, Joseph Ellis, you're you a presidential mm-hmm. historian, so I'm sure you know the work of Joseph Ellis. I just want to point out, American Dialogue, his latest book, I don't know whether you've had a chance mm-hmm, to read yeah. it, but um, he goes back to the found. his specialty is really the mm-hmm. founding mm-hmm. fathers. goes back to the founding fathers and and compares some of the issues not compares, but but follow some of the issues that they were dealing with mm-hmm. up to almost the same issues we're dealing with hmm. today. Uh, one of them is this trust in government, which mm-hmm. which yep. was a big yeah. issue back then. I mean there's as look, well there, as the separation yeah. of powers and the federal government versus the state governments. Those mm-hmm, issues mm-hmm. some we're still kind of dealing with.
5: There's but some macro issues that go you know. from the beginning right through our period. And then there's other battles we look at that are more specific. So we have a lot on the post-60s civil rights battles over institutional racism and, and how do you deal with that in public policy and the increasing divisions that form over these kinds of racial questions. That are different than you know the debates obviously uh, that are early well, on would, and, and are yeah. a feature of the post-war peri- uh, post-60s uh, period, a post-sixties period. I
1: wanted to ask you about those four things you mentioned: mm-hmm. Kevin. Yeah. so uh, the political divide, economic divide, race, and sexuality. So on the race, uh, of course, it didn't start then; it's accentuated, I guess, since yep. since seventy-four. Um, but do you
5: talk about the progress that we've made, or? Have we? (laughs) Well, uh, on some issues on that, we do actually, because later in the book, we deal with Black Lives Matters and the kinds of questions that arose from the police shootings. And 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 while we do talk about there's certainly progress economically, uh, even in certain ideas of what's legitimate and illegitimate uh, in in racial relations. Uh, we cover some of the failures of this period to make progress on questions such as the criminal justice system uh, and obviously the new flaring of white nationalism and explicit racism, which maybe if we'd written the book 10 years ago, uh, we would have probably been arguing it was right. subsuming, but now it's it's front and center from the White House uh, on down. So there are areas where this is a period that's static uh, and and the forces pushing for change lose out.
1: Right. I mean, on that question, we you know when I said the progress we've made, but lately, you know we seem to be going in the opposite direction. Um, yeah and
4: this and this is something that we talk about in the, in the in the book you know there's there's a moment um, it on really... voting
1: rights and some of the other yeah, but yeah issues. exactly yeah. yeah
4: yeah and so so it's both in terms of of, of kind of uh, the uh, the surface appearance of, of progress uh, you know if you look at back when Obama was elected the coverage was basically we solved racism everyone oh, yeah. congratulations oh, yeah. you know right. that, that, mm-hmm. that that this is over we're now a post-racial America right which was Seemed incredibly naive at the time, but looks really bad uh, a decade later if you look at what happened in reaction to that. And that's a cycle that, if you look back through American history, you'll see. Anytime there are certain gains for for racial minorities on civil rights, on issues like this, on on equality, there's generally a backlash, right? Uh, And so we're living through that moment in a lot of ways uh, now. Uh, There's also, though, the substance. Uh, of of what we've done, in which the the belief in progress uh, leads to a retreat, and you see that on voting rights, right? And so we talk about the the Shelby County decision, in which John Roberts basically says, "Hey, look, yeah. uh, the Voting Rights Act has worked, and now we're done. We don't
1: mm-hmm. need it anymore." Mm-hmm. Again, clearly mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, a, a bit naive. We can let those southern states go back to exactly what, right, and naive all... at
5: best. if yeah. not, yeah. not intentional. Right, right.
1: right. Um, so on the economic front. The fault line is the uh, e- 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 equality gap, or the
5: yeah. So it's the kind of growing division between rich and poor, and and which really accelerates uh, starting in the 1970s. And uh, also related to that is the growing instability uh, for middle class Americans in terms of the security that was actually strengthening between the 30s and 60s as social safety net programs mm. start to mm. weaken as the kind of union-based manufacturing jobs go away. And we talk about and how new, the- And the New Deal, I guess. Huh? And the New Deal programs. And so the one of the stories we talk about is the economic division, how they merge in some ways with the partisan division and how Republican uh, politics align with policies that actually accelerate and worsen those economic divisions. So, so those uh, two storylines from the '70s moved together by the Reagan era, uh, right through today, um, and I think are a really important part of of not just what happened, but why it happened. We 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 really pay a lot of attention to how the Republican Party shifts and changes and defines itself during these decades, and certainly on the economic front. I think there's a, a, a real clear relationship between many of the policies they promoted and their vision of the economy, and the struggles that many Americans are facing on a daily basis today.
1: I remember—I'm pretty sure—I remember uh, Barack Obama identifying income inequality as the number one issue of our time. Like, when did it start to really? When did it start to really widen? Widen.
4: Uh, again, I wish I had the the, the charts in front yeah. of me, but if memory serves, it really does pick off, it, it take off in the early '80s, and it really is a project of of the the kind of the conscious policies that you see implemented by uh, by the Reagan administration. Now they argued publicly that. Uh, that that kind of uh, you know what is derided on the left is, is trickle down economics. Oh, yeah, would would right. benefit everyone. You know this would be a rising tide that lifts all boats. Uh, 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 the actual Arthur Laffer and uh, exactly, exactly. The this the is Laffer. what happens when you when you when you start up with a cocktail napkin that you need to maybe uh, <laughs> you know, it a, little, <laughs> right. a little a little deeper than that. Uh, but which, but which Stockman at identified least he had notes as voodoo. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Yes. Yeah. Right. And they kept them. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, that's right. No one, no
1: one ate that napkin or, or threw or or it I away. I right? wonder if yeah. Laffer still has that napkin. I think he does. I, yeah, no, I think there's
4: actually the, the it's still so, it's still been preserved. Yeah. It's probably uh, it's probably in a vault somewhere.
1: But Stockman identified
4: it as voodoo economics, right? Well, that was that was George H. W. Bush's famous turn during the during the debate. He he becomes yeah. a, a true believer once he becomes vice president, of course. But once those policies are are enacted, you really do see. Uh, the gap between rich and poor uh, take off and it's you know even by, by the late 80s former you know former Nixon um, Nixon strategist Kevin Phillips has a book called the politics of rich and poor in which even he uh, you know a, a, a true believer in, in in the Republican Party had come to see that the Reaganomics had had really made things much worse
1: um did you, you reference couple of times the Republican Party I yep. mean who is the Republican Party today hmm. Well, I mean, I, this is maybe your next book.
5: No, so, but right? it, it is actually, but it, it is part of this book. And we wrote this book and finished this book before Donald Trump was a candidate. And we at the end we added a chapter on this and an epilogue because of what happened. Uh, but in some ways, we're tracing some of the lineage of what's going on now to the last few decades. And I think it's impossible or wrong to say the Republican Party was that. And now it's this right in fact they're connected so on the kind of economic dimension we're discussing this stuff has been developing for since the 80s and President Trump pretty much follows the Reagan playbook on a lot of economic issues not all uh, but certainly deregulation and taxation and then this other part of the Republican Party where kind of white nationalism and a reactionary form of politics has taken hold in the smash-mouth approach to governing we trace this also back several decades it's been brewing uh and the party was redefined into a combination of these two things this supply Mm -hmm. side economics and a real rural based aggressive kind of politics in washington and that's what the republican party is and i think people who say the establishment versus the trump party they have it wrong not just because of now. It's not just they now embrace Trump. Right, right. Trump came out of where the party had moved over these decades.
1: Right. I think that's a very important point that he didn't take over the Republican Party. He grew out of the Republican Party and the Republican Party. And we saw this, with, I think, with the Tea Party here in Washington. Yep. You know, and John Boehner afraid to step up to right. them, and then right. Kevin McCarthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kevin. I mean, uh, now yeah. Kevin McCarthy but Paul Ryan right. um, afraid, to, and then gradually the, the, you know, that. They built in that direction mm-hmm. and then basically set the stage for a guy like Donald Trump.
5: Right, right. And the media and the conservative media, which we write a lot about the history of the media, as you have. And uh, and this development of Fox News and a very partisan media where information is openly uh Kind of provided from this perspective, and and a certain kind of conservatism. Also, it's it's where he came, literally where he came right. from. The birther moment. He was making appearances on this network, and and so it's a it's a whole world that had been built uh, for for many decades now, and and he fits comfortably. And this is I don't know, this is my opinion. This is what the Republican Party is now. They can't distance themselves from it.
1: Right. Um, so politics, economy, race. Sexuality, the, mm-hmm. the fault line on sexuality, how so? Well,
4: it's, it's gender and sexuality. And, and so if you, if you think about the, the transformations that feminism and the movement for gay and lesbian rights made in the, uh, uh, in the, in the 70s, it really does take off. Uh, in the um, uh, uh, in the '80s and beyond, and really becomes a flashpoint of the of the book. And so, this is one of the ways in which we talk about uh, the pushback against conservatism. You know, often the story of the 1980s is told in which the Reagan Revolution kind of crashes ac- across the country and wipes everything uh, out in yeah, front of it. Uh, right. If you look at at the at what's going on with feminists, what's going on with gay and lesbian uh, 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 rights campaigns like act up, uh, which really uh, put AIDS. Uh, on uh, on the national agenda and a way in which the Reagan administration had refused. You know, when it first comes up in a White House press briefing, Larry speaks, jokes about it, the spokesman for the Reagan administration. You know, it makes, makes jokes about it. I don't have AIDS. Do you have AIDS? Ha ha ha. You know, it, it's something they yeah. literally laugh off. Act up, has an aggressive of course, form.
1: Ronald Reagan wouldn't mention the word. Wouldn't mention the word un,
4: un, un, until yeah. it hit home with him with Rock Hudson, right? Yeah, It's, it's yeah. a story we talk about in the book. And so when, when ACT UP really has an aggressive in-your-face style of politics and actually uses the tension of that fault line to really make progress happen, uh, they finally get it on the agenda. And so, you know, that's in the late 80s. You fast forward 15 years, and George W. Bush, who's in many ways kind of Reagan's disciple, uh, is actively pushing for massive funding for uh, for AIDS uh, treatment in Africa, which is a, which is a huge accomplishment of that administration that I think a lot of people don't talk about. But that's a huge shift in the Republican side, not just to say in terms of the the country as a whole.
1: Right. But isn't this an area where, in, in the, this last 40 years, there's been tremendous progress made and still being made? I mean, you, you mentioned both. Um, if you yep. want the Me Too movement mm-hmm. now, right? right, and the LGBT movement, LGBTQ, I, yeah. uh, which uh, they made remarkable strides right. and um, and I think are real powers, and political powers mm-hmm. today. Is-
5: no, absolutely. And our, and our book isn't about total progress or total decline. Uh, it's yeah. it's okay. the messiness of history is what we both love. Yeah. Uh, and, and people don't like that. They want a kind of clarity. And yeah. so there are issues where, yes, uh, our story, I think, of of the gay rights movement uh, and the revolution in sexuality, that you could probably term one of dramatic change and momentum forward to a place that was better where it was in the 50s. From something like research on a disease to what are public notions in TV and radio about what's legitimate. And, uh, and by and the so way, way talking back to what we talked about, yeah.
1: that's one area where the Republican Party has really not kept up. That, right. that okay. is true, okay. yeah. think that I think. Mean. that They're
5: kind of moving against the grain mm-hmm. of popular opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right,
1: and which has hurt them. Absolutely, if you, yeah. If, if you look at the the number of Republican members of women in mm-hmm. Congress yeah. and in the Senate, I mean, it's, I think, what was it, 13? It was 13 back in 1989. And it's 13 today. And it's 13 yeah. today.
5: Yeah, so. I mean, the cultural revolution of the 60s, I think we say many times when we look at movies, uh, and it held. And I think right. the GOP has been standing against that.
1: This is fascinating stuff. The book, again, is Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, available in your uh, local independent bookstore, uh, but also anywhere else where you might want to buy books, like Amazon.com. Any hope i have got 30 seconds left. 30 right? seconds for hope. Do you end up, <laughs> do you end up <laughs> the book with any We There's a little hope. And I, I think if
4: you, if you look at what's going on generationally, there really is, I think, I may sound naive, but I do think this new generation is stepping up in ways. You saw it in Parkland with putting gun mm-hmm. r- rights yeah. uh, and gun reform on the table. You saw it with the midterms coming out to vote when usually younger folks don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there are some seeds of of hope here. I'll leave you with that. Look, in our period,
5: movements matter. They make a difference from conservative movement activists to the gay rights movement. And so that means that can happen again. They can change the direction of our country. Well,
1: thanks, guys. It's just fascinating. So if we could go on and on the book Fault Lines, Uh, you can get it. And Kevin Cruz, Julian Ms. thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. We'll be right
0: back. Talk Russia. This is the Bill
1: Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support.
0: Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com/slash/TheBillPressShow.
1: Yes, the FBI considered, or were worried about, or suspected the President of the United States of being a Russian spy. Oh my God! Hello, everybody. It's a Monday, January 14. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. Thanks so much for being with us here as we start off a new week with uh, blockbuster news over the weekend, not only that uh, Donald Trump uh, suspected by the FBI, they launched an investigation long before Robert Mueller that he might be uh, on the Russian payroll, but also the Washington Post reporting that Donald Trump has such a chummy relationship with Vladimir Putin that he has uh, had all the records of any conversations they had destroyed because he just wants to keep it between... Him and Vlad. Um, All of that to talk about and a whole lot more. That's why it's good to have you with us. Plus, we have a couple of uh, extra 2020 candidates jumping in over the weekend. Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii and Julian Castro from Texas. Uh, So add those to your list, and the list keeps growing of those in or expected to jump in. We'll bring it all to you from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. We want to particularly talk all the latest developments vis-a-vis Russia uh, with our good friend Max Bergman, who's senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, uh, particularly on the Russian angle. Hello, Max. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. I think it's not too late to say Happy New Year, your first visit of the New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. We yeah. have
2: this We have this sort of ongoing thing with Max where we book him to talk about, you know, uh, we booked him to talk about, like, the Manafort stuff last
1: week. Yeah, and but... then
2: after we booked him, lo and behold, <laughs> we get these bombshells about Trump and Russia. This is not the first time that's happened. <laughs>
1: Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah good booking. Just, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the
2: phrase is drinking from a fire hose yes. when it comes to Trump and Russia.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, last thing Donald Trump wanted was for Russia to get back in the headlines. But here it is. So we will jump right into uh, these big stories of the weekend. But first, this check with is Pete the Peter on uh, Court
2: Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, Bill. Uh, yes. You saw Vice. I did. You didn't love it. Uh, I saw it. I I it wasn't as good as I had hoped it
1: would be. It had some problems, but I liked it. But uh, Dick Cheney is as evil as we thought. Dick I mean, Cheney is clear. as evil yeah. as we
2: thought. Well, right. for whatever weird reason, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner decided to go out to the movies this weekend and go see Vice. They did not like it, <laughs> as you can imagine. Apparently- Where'd
1: they go? East Street? Street? Uh, that's right. So I think that's I'm the not sure. place it's it's showing played. in theaters
2: everywhere. I'm not sure. Okay. I, I think I think they might have actually been in Florida. Yeah, they went for in West oh. Palm Beach. Oh. They went to a movie theater there. Uh, oh. This was last yeah. week, not this past weekend, I should yeah. say. Uh, they went to go see this movie, and according to multiple theater goers, they walked out of the movie. They waited till the movie was about three quarters of the way done, and then they decided they had had enough. They were going to leave. To which I just have to wonder why the hell would they have gone to go see this movie in the first place?
1: No. Uh, besides, let me tell you, they could easily get a copy of any movie they wanted to oh, watch and watch it at home. <laughs> right. Particularly that movie?
2: Yeah. I don't asking, know why they're asking for trouble. Yeah, I don't know why they would go see it. By the way, today is the day in Los Angeles. The teachers are set to oh, go really? on strike yeah. today. It's a big deal. We, we we've had a couple of teacher strikes in recent. Uh, Uh, Years uh, that have had a big impact on how teachers get paid and resources for schools and things like that. But here's the deal with Los Angeles. Uh, This will impact about half a million students. It's the second largest school district in the nation. They have tried for 20 months to negotiate over some of uh, what they want, and they have just not gotten them, so it's time for a strike. They are fighting for a pay raise, smaller class sizes, and hiring additional support staff because they're saying that the teachers are being stretched too thin.
1: The last big strike I remember in Los Angeles, by the way, go teachers, go teachers, Yeah, uh, was uh, 1989 and uh, I walked the line in 89. There you go. I was doing television in Los Angeles at the time and joined the teachers on the picket line. Yeah.
0: This is the Bill Press Show.
1: Yep, the latest CNN poll, Donald Trump, 37% approval rating, 57% disapproval rating. Uh, That number is just reversed in Russia, Uh, 57% (laughs) approve of Donald Trump, probably 97% (laughs) approve of him in Russia. Hey, hello, everybody. Uh, Yeah, he's working for them, says the FBI, or thought the FBI. It is The Bill Press Show. This is Monday, January 14. Good to have you with us today as we join you coast to coast all all over this great land of ours. Wherever you happen to be, we are there with you, alongside of you, on the radio, on television, and online. Online, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, where you can find our podcast as well. And we urge you uh, to check out the podcast, billpressshow.com, and sign up for the podcast. Looking at you on television, on Free Speech TV, and on the radio with the great uh, WCPT out in Chicago and the greater Chicago area. Two blockbuster stories, the New York Times on Saturday and the Washington Post on Sunday about uh, the the president's kind of strange relationship uh, with Russia, raising questions again that were first raised during the campaign, or we first wondered during the campaign, when Donald Trump is making such positive statements about Vladimir Putin does what does Putin have on Trump Max Bergman follows these issues as a senior fellow at the Great Center for American Progress in the
6: studio with us Hi Max good Hi. to see you Good to see you Um
1: so this is a pretty big
6: story right Yeah it's it's a very big story I have to admit on the New York Times story the first time i read it i had to actually read it twice to sort of say okay what what it what what's actually new here yeah. um in, in the sense that so just to be sure yeah. the new
1: york times story which hit friday night in print saturday morning that the fbi when with uh, the firing of james comey yeah on top and the whole circumstances that the fbi began to Suspect at least an open investigation into the fact that whether Donald Trump might in fact be working for the Russians
6: Yeah, and and so why this is even
1: saying that statement is just hard No, it's it's
6: it's mind-boggling but you know a few months earlier two months earlier that year So in March 20th 2017 I think is actually one of the biggest days when historians look back and write the history of the Russia scandal Uh, That will be a big day because that was the day that James Comey testified for the first time publicly his first public statements since, you know, he intervened in the in the 2016 election. Uh, And he was appearing before the House Intelligence Committee and Democrats were furious. You know, here is the opportunity to grill Comey. You know, why did you reveal this uh, this Clinton investigation? But, you know, we had seen all the we've been seeing all these stories about Russia, but you haven't said anything about Russia. And so what did Comey say? He said. You know, we don't talk about ongoing investigations except if they're you know really in the public interest. And so today, under the counterintelligence mission of the FBI, I am telling you that there's an investigation between uh, links and coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. So we knew there was a counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign. Trump then the next few months said, well, I'm not an under investigation. I'm not under investigation. Mm-hmm. Last time I checked... Trump ran the campaign. So there was this sort of distinction between this counterintelligence investigation into the campaign and into Trump personally. And what the New York Times story tells us is that after Trump fired Comey, and then, you know, as well as took a number of additional actions, including meeting the Russian foreign minister, revealing intelligence, that the FBI said, okay, we're gonna drop the pretense now, or drop the illusion that Trump himself isn't under a counterintelligence investigation, and go back and say, and basically, yes, he is under a counterintelligence investigation. And the other thing is that, you know, when we think back to this famous dossier. And who was running the FBI at the time? So so the FBI at the time was uh, run by James Comey. And then after he was fired, the uh, acting uh, director became Andrew McCabe. So
1: it was Andrew McCabe. Who was director when the FBI said, we're going to look at Trump himself.
6: Yes, but right? but I believe that would have had to also been coordinated with mm-hmm. the uh, acting attorney general for the Russia investigation, which would have been Rod Rosenstein. So we have this kind of, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the people then put in charge of the FBI or who are in positions of uh, uh, authority over the Russia investigation have all been subject to withering attack by, by Donald Trump. Um, and so... You know, I think the 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 extreme significance of the New York Times story is to effectively confirm what we kind of all suspected all along, uh, which is that Trump is the subject of a counterintelligence investigation that uh, that he is a suspected Russian agent by the U.S. government. And while that is so incredibly, I mean, is it's, that
1: a criminal investigation?
6: So. They used to separate these two between counterintelligence and criminal. Now of course, if you're an, you know an un, if you're an, uh, an agent of a foreign power and don't register, that has criminal implications. But I think what's important to understand is that a lot of the past counterintelligence efforts when we were trying to hunt spies back during the Cold War, uh, especially spies within the US government, oftentimes you you discover one. And you don't really want to reveal your sources and methods, how you actually learn that that person is a spy. And so your main objective is to just get them out of a position in which they can uh, do damage. So get them out of government, for instance. Uh, So oftentimes you see people being charged with lying or obstructing justice or not paying their taxes. And really what that's about is getting them out of a position of influence. And so here we have a person who's suspected of being a, a foreign agent in the Biggest position, the most influential position in in the United States. Okay, so it wasn't just.
1: I guess I'm trying to figure out what are the actions that triggered a counterintelligence. uh, Now, we know he fired Comey. Yeah. And the day after he fired Comey, he has this Oval Office meeting with Kislyak and um, um, the foreign minister in the Oval Office where he said, Yeah, I got him off my back. I did this to get, right? But, but this FBI investigation started earlier. What were the actions that triggered the initial counterintelligence thing?
6: So this is why I think the distinction between Trump and the campaign doesn't make a lot of sense, um, is that first, Trump ran the Trump campaign. And we know this because Trump himself said it, uh, everyone on the campaign, all embedded re- political reporters yeah. like, oh, he's his own strategist. He makes every decision. And so what prompted the FBI Uh, To investigate the Trump campaign campaign was that they saw all these meetings and contacts with uh, with Russian operatives, with Russian agents, with um, with things that looked incredible. Paul Manafort. Manafort and And Page Page and all. We have to forget that uh, Carter Page, who joined the campaign as a foreign policy advisor in March 2016 was a suspected Russian agent at the time yeah. that he joined the campaign. And then what does he go about and do? Well, he goes to Russia and has meetings with very senior level uh, figures that yeah. that the Trump campaign knew about. Then we see this guy, George Papadopoulos, that is meeting with Russian agents uh, while in Europe, finding out that the Russians have hacked the DNC and hacked John John Podesta, and then reporting that back. And we have Paul Manafort, who affected, whose right-hand man as a political operative, when he was working in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, it, we now know was a Russian or is a Russian agent. So the the level of links and contacts prompted the FBI and also the some of the statements Donald Trump calling on the Russia mm-hmm. to hack Hillary Clinton. Um, and then we get to this dossier, this famous cr- dossier yeah. by Christopher Steele, this MI6 agent. Now everyone is sort of focused on this tape and whether Trump was caught in some sexually compromising situation. Uh, but I, I think the real bombshell within the dossier, and this is a guy who had worked with the FBI before, helped bring down FIFA, uh, uh, the real shocking thing in the dossier is Steele cites four different sources, two Russians that were uh, based in Moscow and two Russian emigres here in the United States. And all four say that between the period of 2008 and 2011, Donald Trump became uh, started in- interacting and cooperating with Russian intelligence. Now, that sounds totally insane. You know, how could Donald Trump, you know, why would he potentially be someone that the Russians would be interested in? Well, I think the explanation is is in some ways very clear. The Russians at the time were trying to infiltrate the New York business scene. Here's Donald Trump, who's someone who also has a very high profile, mm. has lots of Russian money, Russian oligarchs operating in is uh, uh, buying... Uh, units in his building, and so wanted to establish a, an intelligence relationship with him, a sharing relationship. And so what one of the unexpli- the things that is just came I mean, out exp- that,
1: that is... Uh, that's a bombshell. Uh, you're, you're right. That didn't get much attention at all. No, it didn't get... All. It,
6: didn't, it sort of... Everyone sort of glossed over it. And yeah. that was... And so if you're the FBI and you're like, okay, who are these four sources? And then you start, you start pulling the threads on them. Um, and the thing that is so inexplicable about the Trump organization is that we have to remember the 2008 real estate crisis, right? That Trump is basically, he's in real estate. He's going bankrupt. And yet somehow he, he magically recovers, that Deutsche Bank settles a lawsuit uh, against him and keeps lending him money. He, st- he starts launching these, these golf courses in Scotland and Ireland that don't appear to be making money and don't appear to have any financial sense. And so you start thinking, how did this guy actually recover from, uh, from this eco- economic crisis? Well, Donald Trump Jr. at the time said, Russian money, in Russian 2000- money was right? that they were cultivating the Russian buyer. So I think if you add this all together and you're the FBI and you're like, here's someone who's very compromisable from a per- from his personal life, then his business dealings, uh, he was deeply in debt, looked like he was going down. Uh, and, and then here he has his big public profile uh, and suddenly reemerges on the scene, sort of spouting conspiracy theories uh, in, in the U- in U S politics. So I think for, you know, the, the FBI that, you know, the real question to me is why they hadn't opened a counterintelligence investigation into Trump prior to the firing of Comey. And I think the story of this is actually more...
1: But you indicated, oh, I see, that before the firing of Comey, there was an FBI investigation, counterintelligence into the Trump campaign, not Trump himself.
6: And so they made this distinction. They were trying to, you know, it was too explosive. And in fact, you know, in the New York Times story, it says that that they didn't really want to open it because they feared it would leak. And so there was, you know, I think when the history of this is written, the FBI, counter to what the president claims, that the FBI was just out to get him, yeah. what you're actually going to see is the FBI sort of extremely resistant to sort of pursuit going down this path. And it was sort of other intelligence agencies, foreign intelligence agencies that built up a preponderance of evidence that said, hey, you really have to investigate this guy. And it it took finally the the firing of Comey FBI, for the FBI to sort of say, yeah, okay, we're we're going to open a full-fledged investigation into him, which was then a week later taken over by Robert Mueller uh, as special counsel. Uh, uh,
1: uh, uh, it was just, yeah, just a week later, right? Yeah. So that, so that the investigation, can, so does that mean, can we say, that the investigation continues and that Robert Mueller is still exploring the possibility that Trump was an agent
6: of the Russian government. Yes. And I think then, you know, what it also brings into play is Trump's actions as he's been president. You know, if someone is, un, is uh, an asset or an agent of a foreign power, then what does that mean? Well, it means that they're probably taking actions to advance those countries' interests. And what we see is Trump as president, it, you know, in attacking our European allies. We're in sort of a trade war, not just with China, but also with Europe, with the European Union. Um, uh, uh at every step, not uh, taking the opportunity to condemn Russian actions, uh, not standing up to Russia, not enforcing our, the sanctions that were passed uh, by the Congress, and so we see this sort of repeated uh, actions by Trump as president that uh, that uh, look very look like you know that there's something that that the Russians have on him, at least in the way that he's operating. I think the other thing is that. You know, as this Russia scandal... I just
1: uh, to think about that, I mean, I, 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 we have to fault, I believe, um, President Obama for not doing anything about Russia's seizure of Crimea, but Donald Trump sort of has said, well, it was theirs, yeah.
6: right? I mean, yeah, he's, no. not,
1: he's not condemned it. He sort of said, oh, you know, they did what they had to do or yeah. something
6: like that. Yeah. No, I, you know, I think the Obama administration, and I was in the Obama administration at the time, I, you know... I think Monday morning quarterbacking it needed to be a lot stronger, needed to be a lot um, more aggressive. And I think, you know, they did put in place sanctions. They did start to move U.S. military assets into the region. But yeah, it needed to be stronger, especially during the 2016 election where Russian interference was clear. And then they didn't take this sort of strong response uh, in, in sort of really publicly condemning it. So I think there I think there was a lot more that could be done by the Obama administration. But then we get to Trump and what we see is basically a policy of trying to appease Putin, not trying to sort of stand up to him. Yeah. And in taking actions that are just not in the interest of the United States or have never been conceived of being in the interest of the United States. Um, And and so you have to look at, you know, you go back to the Helsinki meeting that took place in July of 2017 or uh, 2018, where the two leaders are standing there side by side and Trump, you know, all Trump had to do. And when we think about this from a, just a political lens, right, you're, you know, you believe that that Vladimir Putin, or, you know, Trump is, I mean, let's say Trump had nothing to do with Russia, and this is just all just nonsense, as Trump has to believe, then all he needs to do to really get the press off his back is to say tough things to Vladimir Putin. He can say that to anyone, says that to anyone else, but there was the opportunity at Helsinki and he never took it. And the other thing is that if you had nothing to do with this and there was all these sort of you know, meetings and contacts that maybe are, maybe you say are meaningless, then why did you lie about every single one of them? And it's not just Trump. And we know he's a compulsive liar, but it's people like Jared Kushner that says, okay, I had one meeting with the Russian ambassador. That's it. No more meetings. That's it. And then there's, then suddenly it's revealed, no, there's a second meeting. And then Jared Kushner's like, okay, okay, that's really it. And then suddenly there's a third meeting. And so what, what I think we're, we're faced with here is that you don't, consistently lie and try to cover something up unless there's something to cover up. And they're acting guilty for a reason. And I think that's because there's a clear level of guilt here. Now, I think the question is the depth of that. Is he an active Russian asset or were actions taken during the campaign to work with the Russians because it was in their sort of mutual interest and then they kind of went their separate ways? I think there's a lot more, a lot of depth to explore. All right. (laughs) Now, <laughs> I know
1: that is. I mean, it's, it's just huge. It is mind-boggling, okay, that we're even talking about this. Yes. Um. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about some flunky at the State Department, right? No. We're talking about the president of the, the United States. Now, on top of that story comes the Washington Post story. Yeah. That, and of course, they're related, which is again a question, questionable presidential act that. I think there have been five meetings between the president and the the two presidents, and that Donald Trump has gone out of his way to make sure there is zero record kept of anything they talked about, and in some cases, not even having anybody in the room, and in one case, extreme case, of telling the interpreter to destroy his notes, right? Yeah. And what's that all about?
6: I mean, it's sort of the reverse Nixon. (laughs) He's making sure there's no records. Yeah, Um, right. right. uh, And, you know, I, I... I, you know, there's a lot been some debate within sort of the foreign policy world about, you know, I, I was in a lot of meetings with translators, and they're professionals, you know, they're there to, to provide a service, and then so, some people saying, okay, we don't we shouldn't really pull them in front of Congress because then it takes their sort of independence away from them. In my view, is this is about witnessing a potential crime that we know the president is is now under has been under a mm. counterintelligence investigation. So when he's meeting one on one. Uh, with Vladimir Putin, he's but from a criminal standpoint, uh, potentially meeting with his chief handler with the president yeah. of Russia, <laughs> and so uh, that has to be considered. And so this is more about investi- interviewing someone who may have witnessed a crime. Now maybe
1: so isn't it Mueller's job then, not Congress's job?
6: Yeah, and I don't think we know if Mueller, um, ha- you know, I don't, I, I, I haven't seen reporting that, that said Mueller hasn't talked to that person, um, but. Congress has a role here, and I, for a long time, have, you know, what we, you know, when I sort of started, <laughs> went on sort of a, a long soliloquy about uh, about the origins of the counter yeah. toads investigation, let's be clear, for the last two years, this has sort of been known, you know, when, when James Comey did that hearing on March 20th, and what was the Republican Congress's response it was basically to just, you know, batten down the hatches and try to cover up for the president, try to attack the investigation, attack the FBI. Yeah. Congress has a re- has a very important role in both uncovering what happened and explaining it to the American people. This is not all about law enforcement. This isn't all shouldn't all be on Mueller's shoulder shoulders from kind of a law enforcement perspective. That's why we have a co-equal branch in mm-hmm. the US Congress. And so I think it is paramount that Congress start actually doing real oversight, conducting public hearings so that the American people can, Uh, can learn and see what happened that this isn't all behind closed doors and so I think Congress has a real role in in getting to the bottom of this especially when it comes to maybe more politically charged issues you know probably what this interpreter is not going to reveal any crimes that oh Trump and Putin were talking and they were talking about oh how they had an intelligence relationship but there's real policy thing uh, implications at stake from, this, from their potential relationship.
1: So. Well, of course, um, Saturday night, um, Donald Trump, wanting to uh, set the record straight, um, talked to that uh, hard-hitting journalist, uh, Janine Pirro, mm-hmm. uh, about this. Uh, she uh, asked him whether or not, uh, directly, right, did you now or have you ever worked for Russia?
5: Are you now or have you ever worked
0: for Russia, Mr. President? I think it's the most <laughs> insulting thing I've ever been asked i think it's the most insulting article i've ever had written uh and if you read the article you'd see that they found absolutely nothing
6: he doesn't really deny it no he doesn't he doesn't (laughs) deny it and it's sort of the classic liars tact right you're asked something and you you sort of say oh this is just ridiculous and you just sort of move on and you don't actually address the actual question um and in some ways i think it's a i think it's uh likely a tell um, but I think the fact that he felt that he needed to go on television on Saturday night and do damage control and that Fox even felt compelled to sort of, um, uh, you know, Fox, one of their TV personalities at it's a show, uh, you know, evening show to ask him about this. I think, I think there's real concern probably, you know, uh, within not only the white house, but within the Republican party now about w- what have we actually been protecting, um, and they got to be kind of worried about that.
1: All right, so um the question then becomes what does Putin have on Trump? I mean it becomes that that's we we kept asking that question yeah. during the campaign. Uh last night just uh, preparing for today I I was looking online at Trump's statement. If you go back and read Trump's the collection of Trump's statements about Vladimir Putin which yeah. CNN had put together. I mean, he praises this guy over and over again. What a genius he Well, of course, Putin called him a genius, which, of course, he'll, he's forever grateful. But he calls Putin a strong leader. He's a better leader than Obama. I can get along with him. Yeah, at all the time when everybody else, like during those debates, was on on stage, all the Republican candidates dumping on Putin, Trump went out of his way to praise him. And we kept asking here on the show, what does
6: Putin have on Trump? Yeah. Do we know? No, we don't. So we we don't know. I mean, I want me to say, you know, his statements were, were the first red flag, his consistent praise of, yeah. of Putin. And it's, you know, he's only really been consistent about three policy issues since he sort of reemerged in public life. You know, he's been anti-trade, anti-immigration and pro-Russia. And I can tell you while I was in government, Republicans and people who I work with, who I know are Republicans, but they're good government, uh, you know, employees, uh, were like, what is up with his sort of praise of Putin, praise of, and it was really odd. And so what does Putin potentially have on Donald Trump? You know, I think there's multiple different spheres. Yes, there is potentially a compromising sex tape that has been alleged by the dossier. Is that unbelievable? Well, given his 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 proclivities, his actions, the fact that he's, you know, the whole story with the National Enquirer and Stormy Daniels, I think yeah. that's eminently believable. Then there's his businesses, where he was actively trying to cu- cultivate the Russian buyer, the Russian consumer, and you know how do word how does Russian money flow? Well, if you have g- good connections with the Kremlin, you're likely to get a lot of money flowing through, uh, into your or- business or into your company. Right. And so I think the business ties. And then we have you know him uh, as as a politician, where here you know you have a competitive environment of election, and here the Russians have something. They've hacked into the Democratic Party. They've stolen all this information. Hey, what do they have? What do they have? We can work with them; they can help us. You know, I think in every sort of facet—from his personal life, his business life, into as a political operative—you see someone who's very corruptible, who is essentially corrupt, and when offered a corrupt deal, you would think would be inclined, potentially inclined to take it. And so, oh. so it may not be anything mutually beneficial arrangement. Where hey, tell us what's happening in your bu- bu- uh, buildings. We want to follow this Russian oligarch or this uh, uh, Russian person. When they when they're coming and going, can you let us know? Sure. Hey, and this could help yeah. you know business m- money flow to your company.
1: I uh, remember reading at one point that um, that Putin may have seen in Trump a politician, well, a businessman or someone with influence in trouble that he could buy. Yeah, and um, that they have cultivated Trump. How, I mean, how far back does his relationship with Russia go?
6: So, so the origin stories of Trump and Russia are are really interesting, and in that you know we know Mueller has looked into uh, a the November twenty thirteen Miss Universe pageant that Trump brought to yeah. Moscow, um, and what you know what actually took place there. But it goes back to the potential uh, to the eighties. We have to remember he married Ivana Trump, who is a Czechoslovakian uh, resident. The Guardian has reported that Trump would go back to Czechoslovakia. And there, you know, the Ch- uh, Czechoslovakian intelligence was very close, uh, closely associated with the KGB. And the Guardians reported that, yes, people were, were monitoring him. He goes to Moscow in the, in the 80s. And so some have, have circled that and said, okay, maybe that is when Trump's sort of relationship with Russia or with mm-hmm. the Soviet Union kind of emerged. To me, I think you really need to look at the 2008 to 2011 financial crisis. The cultivation when Trump sort of takes over his father's company uh, and the cultivation of the, of the former Soviet Union buyer, uh, that's where these ties, these ties to the oligarchs uh, really start to emerge. And I th- sort of see it as the business ties leading to, um, leading to a relationship with, with the Kremlin. And I think just to, you know, we've been talking about Trump's ties. What, what are the Russians' objective here? And I think it's very clear, and this is where the NRA story is very important. This woman, Maria Butina, oh. who was sent to sort of infiltrate the NRA. What are the Russians trying to do in basically this last decade? They're trying to infiltrate and convert the, the kind of right wing in America, the Republican Party, from being anti-Russian. You know, that was the raison d'etre of the Republican foreign policy. Since right. the end of yeah. World War II, Mitt Romney called Russia our greatest geopolitical threat is to convert the Republican Party To sort of see Russia as a kindred uh, Putin's Russia as a kindred spirit Putin passes all these anti-gay laws He embraces the Russian Orthodox Church, you know Putin is a KG former KGB officer He's not very religious but embraces this sort of religiosity and trying to build Russia up as sort of a beacon for Strongman far-right populism and so here by trying to you know you to do to infiltrate the American right? What do you do well? the The NRA would be a good organization to build ties to, and then here's a guy in Donald Trump, that you know talks like a sort of right wing populist that you can sort of uh, support, cultivate online, hack into the Democratic Party, pro- provide his campaign with support, and he's sowing discord in American politics. He's he's uh, he's trying to turn the Republicans into being pro Russia, but also stoking racism here in the United States um, in division, which is what the Russians and the Soviets have long sought to do, exploit our divisions, our internal divisions, to try to weaken us.
1: So, certainly, um, and I'm sorry, we're just plumb out of time here, but um, what we've learned is that, well, there's the form we've learned from both the New York Times and the Washington Post, very, very disturbing, but whatever the questions are, I guess, this relationship between Putin and Trump has certainly benefited Vladimir Putin and Russia.
6: I mean, extremely. You know, he was looking at being isolated uh, by a Clinton administration, by a more forceful policy towards Russia that was really going to kind of uh, box him in. And instead, nothing has really happened to him for this, this uh, uh, attack on American democracy. It's really uh, quite quite unbelievable. And I think just real quickly where this is headed, You know, I think Mueller is looking at crimes that he can prove definitively. Proving that someone has been an asset or an agent of a foreign power is is very difficult in a criminal sense. And this is part of the reason why we need open congressional hearings to kind of explore some of these details to go uh, and explore this subject for the American people. So they have a fuller picture um, and not just what he can legally prove in front of a jury, in front of a, a judge. Uh, I think we can count on uh, Jerry
1: Nadler and Adam Schiff to uh, provide those. Yes. Uh, Max. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're really on top of this stuff. It's really great. Um, Max Bergman at the Center for American Progress, AmericanProgress.org. Yes. Correct. You follow that uh, when he's not here on the show. Follow him there. And we hope to get you, get you back soon because I don't think this is the end of the story. Nope. <laughs> yes. And the P tape will come out someday. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. Addie Bear joins us next from <laughs> Think Progress. And we carry on with the Bill Press show on this Monday, January 14th. This is the Bill Press Show. Monday, January 14, uh, the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us as we wrap up here on our special Monday edition of the Bill Press Show with Congress coming back into town uh, tomorrow. The government is shut down today, meaning it's a shutdown on top of a shutdown. You've got all of the 800,000 federal employees, uh, part of the Trump shutdown All the rest in Washington, D.C., at least, are shut down because of the snow over the weekend. But uh, it didn't stop us. We are here with you and brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, good men and women of the AFT, Teachers of America under Randy, President Randy Weingarten, making a difference in our classrooms every day, and the AFT um, set to go out on strike today through their Los Angeles chapter, Los Angeles Teachers, uh, and uh, to resolve uh, some negotiations that haven't gone so well. They've been uh, at it for some 20 months and finally haven't worked it out, and they are set to strike today. Go, teachers, go. It's going to be a big challenge for uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, who is just one of those looking at maybe running for president in 2020. Uh, let's go back to the news of the day and this shutdown with our good friend, Addie Baird, political reporter from Think Progress. Hello, hello.
7: Hello, hello. You
1: came You came prepared for the snow. Huh? Of course they did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, you're from Utah. You're used to snow.
7: I am. Got to have your hat, got to have your scarf. I've got snow boots on. I'm all set.
1: There, there you go. Can't, can't stop you. Uh, so today, <laughs> we are now in the longest uh, shutdown ever the Trump shutdown. Uh, today is the f- beginning of the fourth week and day twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Um, any end in sight?
7: No, that's the simple answer. Is there's not. Um, you know, it, it is at at once shocking to consider the fact that there seems to be no end in sight. And also, not that surprising, considering what you know, what we know about this administration and the way that things have gone for the last two years. But this is a this is a real mess. Um, you know, there was a story, I believe, on Friday uh, that you know, um, various bureaus and, and agencies are preparing for a shutdown that will last through February. Um,
1: Why isn't there more outrage? More people, more upset about it?
7: I feel. People are increasingly becoming upset by this. I think it's a little bit hard for people to grasp, um, in, in some ways, which is only to say that um I think a lot of this problem is is uh seems like and and is covered like it is uh, affecting DC only, but these eight hundred thousand federal workers are not only in the Beltway. These are people who work for national parks. These are people who uh, you know work across the country. Um, and then there's this sort of exponential effect where uh, you know I was talking to some hotel owners um, outside Yosemite and and Joshua Tree, and they were basically saying like they're having trouble filling their rooms that affects and and that um you know uh,
1: restaurants shops exactly
7: and that national park service um you know a lot of them frequent the restaurants in these hotels and they're not coming to eat and then you've got um you know employees who are basically paid by occupant they were explaining and there's no occupants. So they're, they're, I think the longer this goes on, I think the more and more people will be outraged because you're starting to see those exponential effects that are affecting millions of people.
1: Uh, the latest ABC poll shows that 53 percent of Americans actually blame uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans for the shutdown. Twenty nine percent blame Democrats. So the uh, president keeps saying this is a big political win for the Republican Party. Doesn't seem to be that way. No,
7: I don't think it is, and I don't think it will be. I think, I mean, that's a, that's one of the things that he's uh, he says, and you just have <laughs> to laugh. Like it's not I mean,
1: there's no doubt that I mean he he has made it clear that this is a Trump shutdown. He owns it. He wants to own it. Right. He brags about I it. Mean, he does not deny that he is the man who's caused it in the first place. And continues to refuse to
7: resolve it. He kind of goes back and forth. Like it, yeah, he, right. you know, before the shutdown, he basically said, I will own this. I will carry the mantle of this shutdown. Um, I'll be proud of it. Right. And then very quickly he was like, <laughs> you know, Democrats could end this if they would only give me wall funding. But I think to your point, he is never acted embarrassed about this. He has never, um, you know, he basically has painted the furloughed federal workers as if they were on vacation. And he doesn't seem to have any empathy for them. He doesn't seem to have any concern for them. Um, He doesn't really seem to be bothered at all by the effects of this shutdown. And in that sense, like, this is his. He's he's not apologizing. He's not expressing any empathy. He's not expressing any concern.
1: In Miami and in Houston, um, they had to shut down uh, a couple of terminals at the airport because not enough TSA workers or too many TSA workers stayed off the job. I don't blame them. They're not getting paid. It's a tough job. Um, take a lot of crap from people like me going through the airport. Um, and um, long hours. Uh, and uh, so they've just said, hell with it. I'm not going to come to work, right?
7: Right, and legally... Now, if, if
1: that happens more, air traffic like I was talking with one of them, air traffic controllers, what if they stayed home?
7: Oh, it could be a disaster, and that is, I think, the thing that really could turn up the dial of Absolutely. outrage. That's why I um, hope they do stay
1: home. Air traffic controllers and TSA, you have my permission, my plea. Stay home from work. Do not go to work. Shut this shut the airports down then and we'll lately, see how fast the government they reopens. They
7: can't strike. There, you know there's like a, yeah, you know right. beca- but um, Thank
1: you, Ronald Reagan.
7: They can take sick days. Like there's there's yeah. ways to and honestly I think that this like you said this could be this could be the biggest story of the shutdown.
1: Um and uh so you've written about I mean for Donald Trump he's he's put himself in a box, right? Okay. Right. That he Has to win, right? He can never admit he was wrong, can never admit defeat, can never uh, admit that he agreed to some compromise, right? It's got to be a total win for him. Uh, But he's dealing with a different Congress than he was last year. So how can he win this? He's been saying, I can win it. And maybe it's the only way out. Is it the only way out? E- an emergency declaration. And if so, why hasn't he already done it?
7: I think that my prediction for how this is going to end, um, should it ever end, um, is that Trump will basically spend um, other border spending, you know, for reinforcing barriers that are already uh, on the border, for other kinds of, you know, border security as his win. He will he is so shameless about saying, like, no, this is what I asked for all along. And people like me and you can say, no, it's not like we can, you know, here's where you said that this isn't what you wanted. But, you know, it doesn't actually matter to him. (laughs) And so my guess is that eventually he will spin border security spending that is not five point seven billion dollars for a wall as exactly what he was asking for all along. And he will get a win. I don't as, – as for the emergency declaration, like, I don't know. I think if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. Um, and well, we were told
1: – in fact, members of Congress were told – I was down at the Congress Thursday evening at a reception, uh-huh. talked to a lot of members and Democrats all, but they had been told that Friday – The president was going to declare the emergency declaration. And the reporting seemed to indicate that the White House was moving in that direction. Trump was talking about it more and more. Pence was talking about it. Uh, But it didn't happen.
7: Right. And I don't know. At this point, it's one of those things. Occasionally, um, you know, you'll see reporters break big news about Trump, you know, (laughs) Deciding he's going to declare an emergency, uh, a state of emergency, or you're going to, you know, what he's going to say in a speech or who he's going to fire. And they will give the caveat that like nothing in this White House is official until it is official like until it comes out of the president's mouth because he changes his mind so quickly at the last minute like he i think this this emergency declaration is sort of the perfect example of that like there's something happening in the background here where he has basically decided that the state of emergency declaration might not get him exactly what he wants might make this worse might make him look bad when he doesn't you know just drop Billions of dollars from the sky for a wall. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I think that that it's interesting. He there must be something that's keeping him from that that makes him understand that that doesn't actually give him an automatic win. Um, But I don't know. It's it's a complicated um, back and forth. That's sort of classic for this president.
1: Right. Uh, In the meantime, um, the Trump shutdown. Uh, he's able to pull it off with the um, active assistance of Republicans in Congress, in the Senate, at least starting with starting with Mitch McConnell. Senator Dick Durbin uh, yesterday was on this week with uh, George Stephanopoulos, um, pointing out that if Republicans, the so-called maybe moderate or centrist Republicans, if there are any left, uh, really want to do step up here, it's They could, and it's time for them to do so. Here's Senator Durbin.
3: There are Senate Republicans, the centrists who were trying to find some solution, were shut down by the White House. It's time for those centrists to speak up in their own Republican Senate caucus and to tell Mitch McConnell the party's over. We want this to end. There's no excuse for the shutdown.
1: Right. Um, They could. They passed this bill to open the government in December. Right. Right. Uh, Unanimously.
7: (laughs) Right. Right.
1: Uh, they could do it again. They could. McConnell won't let them. They McConnell's, could. Yeah.
7: <laughs> and at the same time, not only, you know, you're right. I, I think Mitch McConnell would not let them. Oh, they he also are he not. said that
1: unless Donald Trump says he'll sign it, we're not going to pass it.
7: Well, and the thing is. Those moderates and centrists have also not mm-hmm. really like made a stink of this. They they could right. publicly yes. say, like, we have to open the government, et okay. cetera, et cetera. To
1: be fair, four of them have said that. They that, that we can right. open the government and continue to debate. So Lisa Murkowski, right. Susan Collins, Tom Tillis and uh there was a fourth one that came on last week. Uh, Lisa Markowski did I say no, Cory Gardner. Cory Gardner. Cory Gardner. Cory Gardner. Yeah. Gardner, thank you. Yeah. Right.
7: Um, and, so, and yeah, good for them, but for all them. the rest are
1: as <laughs> cowardly as McConnell.
7: <laughs> right, right. So, you know, that's the thing is, is great. Four, f- four of them is, is it's
1: pathetic. Great yeah.
7: for those four. But you Lindsey Graham.
1: I right. Mean, but the rest cowards. of them
7: will never, the rest of them will always fall in line with McConnell. And, and four of them is not well, enough to really question. pressure him. So
1: those four, by the way, yeah. are all up for reelection in 2020. Right. With tough, tough, tough slates, right? Tough numbers, right? They all have a challenge, unless they they fear they will. Um, And the rest of them, if they so, for political reasons, they think they can just survive, and this is just uh, you know not going to impact them.
7: You know, I don't know. I think it's I I I was talking to some people uh, last week about all the things we thought would affect the midterm elections that no one even thinks about no one even thought about when it came to november um you know there was a shutdown last year for like two days and people were saying you know this is gonna do in senate republicans this is is short memories are so short and i'm not at all convinced that when all that i'm not at all convinced that This is going to have any effect on people who are up for election in 2020, including President Trump, even if this does drag through February.
1: Yeah. I had to get I got a kick over the weekend of Trump. I mean, he's just like this madman in the White House with his iPhone, you know, that won't stop tweeting. And he's saying, here I am. I'm in the White House. And I insist that the Congress come back today, right, and deal with this Saturday. I mean, he could, any day last week, he could have ended this. Congress was here, right? They go home for the weekend. Which they do like every weekend.
7: You know what tweet of his from the weekend I can't stop thinking about. Did you see that one about uh Elizabeth Warren's oh. husband? Where yeah. he was like the right. he was like the weirdest line in I the mean, Elizabeth Warren beer catastrophe was when she turned to her husband and was like, I'm so glad you're here and Trump was like, It's their house. He's supposed to be there and I was like you're not wrong <laughs> like, like on this one <laughs> what
1: was the point well it's i so... I must admit I did not understand that tweet so at like
7: all. it's been on like New Year's Eve, so it's been weeks yeah. Elizabeth Warren drank a beer on Instagram live and right. it was like you know, kind of silly and yeah. it was what it yeah. was right. and apparently he's just catching up to do his tweeting about it now but right. I just it was the weirdest. It was the weirdest weekend in Trump tweets. <laughs> no, I
1: saw that and I thought. First of all, I knew that that the one I remembered happened a long time ago.
7: The I don't beer thing. think it's. I don't think she's done that. Maybe I'm wrong, but you know, this is. I think he is referring to Peter, her drinking a beer. That's like right? that was a. That was like two weeks ago, right? Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, right. Okay, and I'm so glad you're here. But yeah, and then, so <laughs> Trump has to tweet out. Yeah, of course. Where else would he be? He's her husband. But yeah. it made me yeah, laugh. Yeah. Well, where's so Melania, dude? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. She was yeah, in Mar a Lago without you, happy as a clam.
2: Uh... <laughs> okay. It's you know he he knows where to pick fights. I'll give Trump that. I shouldn't say all the time, but like he does know where to pick fights. Like he knew to pick a fight with Jim Acosta. He knows to pick a fight with Elizabeth Warren. He knew that. The presidential election of two thousand sixteen had absolutely nothing to do with policies and purely about Donald Trump picking a fight with Hillary Clinton. Right? Like he he does sort of get that.
7: And that's my biggest concern for Democrats in twenty twenty. Yep. And is that like you can't you can't let you you cannot fight the fight that he picks. You can't fight on his chosen ground. You can't and that is For as much as I I think Elizabeth Warren is a very smart woman and an absolute policy genius, uh, the DNA test is, is proof not only that she's not really listening to Native communities, and also it was her fighting on his chosen ground. That is a huge problem. He
2: defined the rules of the match. Yeah,
7: and that's a huge, huge problem for Democrats. Yeah.
1: Frank Bruni had an excellent piece in the New York Times yesterday. The challenge is also not just facing Democrats but also facing the media. Are we going to fight on his grounds? Are we going to respond and report on every tweet? And the answer is no, we should not because that's exactly what he wants to get us off track. And talk about his tweets, uh, but that's a real a real challenge. So you raised uh, 2020 uh, as a political reporter for Think Progress. Um, we had some activity, some action over the weekend on the 2020 front.
6: It's time uh, one
1: expected <laughs> and one unexpected. I, I must admit, every time I made up a list, Tulsi Gabbard was never on my list. Where the hell did that come from?
7: I said to someone over the weekend. I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, "Who is?" Tulsi Gabbard running for other than Tulsi Gabbard, and the answer is nobody, no one, no one except for Tulsi Gabbard wants Tulsi Gabbard to run for president.
1: Yeah, I mean, who's her team, right? What is her constituency? I Twitter mean, bots,
7: what... like that's like like there's no, you know, and and of course it is January of 2019. Um, at, you, you, I, we all know Sh- you can't write anyone off. That's said, Yes, you can.
1: Yes, you can. Tulsi
7: Gabbard is not going anywhere.
1: Right, right. I mean, I doubt that she'll ever officially enter the race.
7: I mean, right. And I don't think she'll ever really be on the debate stage. I don't. And and I even hear myself say this. I think of the things that we said in 2016. But Tulsi Gabbard is not Donald Trump. Tulsi Gabbard is not, you know, Tulsi Gabbard. And and for any of your listeners who are not familiar, Tulsi Gabbard is an enigma. She's a. Very, very progressive domestic policy, uh, you know, person. She's kind of Sanders-esque in her domestic right. policy. And she has. And
1: she b- resigned from the DNC in order to support exactly Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And so that was no. sort
7: of her. That was sort of yeah. her rising star moment. Um, Tulsi Gabbard has a history of homophobia uh, which has really come to the fore, um, and that's obviously unacceptable for a Democratic presidential candidate. And um, she has her foreign policy is questionable is an understatement. She has a long history of uh, you know sympathizing with authoritarians and fascists, um, including Bashar Pizar- al-, al Assad right. in in Syria. And you know it's completely unsustainable. It's it's sort of. It's unacceptable. It's, right. it's really bizarre.
1: The, uh, the, pers- the other person who did jump in with both feet, uh, Julian Castro, former mayor of San Antonio. He did so in San Antonio in his home district. Here he is with his uh, grandmother standing right there.
3: When my grandmother got here almost 100 years ago, I'm sure that she never could have imagined that just two generations later, one of her grandsons would be serving As a member of the United States Congress, and the other would be standing with you here today to say these words I am a candidate for president of the United States of America.
1: Long shot, but attractive candidate.
7: Yeah. Only Latino. Much more serious than than Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, he is interesting. There was, was, I think that, that speech he gave is pretty set a pretty clear path mm-hmm. for this campaign um, you know he clearly wants to cut the kind of find the difference between the kind of Bernie esque true progressive progressivism and the more kind of centrist uh, moderate he he said you know we need to have free college for two years
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
7: um, <Close. laughs> yeah. you know and so Good there's this, there's this right where you're sort of like okay and and frankly I think that he could really speak to some people. I think that he he might be able to develop a real constituency.
3: Yeah.